0: I don't want to be the best food, I don't want to be the best thing, but I want to be Ian Botham, the best all-rounder. The thing that drives me more than anything else is community, humans, connection to humans and learning through food, then the history and geography of those things.
1: This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Building a brand can give you the ability to branch out into other areas and explore new and exciting initiatives. For renowned chef Matt Wilkinson, the solid foundation of successful hospitality businesses has springboarded him into a raft of exciting food offerings, not just in hospitality. Matt, how are you going?
0: Not really good, hookers How are things?
1: Good, mate, good. You've done a lot of things and incredible stuff in the hospitality space, but um, I never had you down as a spice rub guy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, <be>, <laughs> uh, a spice girl maybe, but not a spice rub. <laughs> um, mate, I, I, me neither. Um, and uh, it came to fruition from me actually closing the OG Pope Joan in uh, Brunswick. Um, I started actually working with a lot of uh, waste products, wanting to create a biofuel, uh, either charcoal or smoking pellets. Um, And I nailed it. So I was like, that's how, you know, um, I got in contact with Four Pillars. I was working with Cobram Estate, um, uh, Montague's Orchards, um, this cherry farm, a citrus farm, and basically taking waste product from manufacturing um, uh, uh, produce. uh, drying it and then pressing it with um kiln dried recycled timber for these pellets so you know for example you'd be smoking with apple not apple wood so it was the skins of the apple um so i did all the r&d and <laughs> classic chef wise of not knowing anything and this is why good companies do well like they do the research of what that market place is and the, the the dollar value around it so i had a meeting with some uh, friends of friends of, from bunnings and they're like matt like it's you might make 40 grand for the year <laughs> and i'm like yeah maybe a bit too advanced and you know then there's the the of the world and um, doing these different flavored pellets but just it was like a lot of competitive markets. so a friend said well why don't you look at rubs and i'll be honest with you the low and slow barbecue movement wasn't at my cup of tea, and I don't know remember, I did this. I did the summer camp cookouts, and that was all over fire. It was this classic 40 gal drum that was welded together with a half flat plate half grill, and other barrels just all out the back of Poke Joan. And I loved cooking off a of fire like Alan Snaith, Warialda, the beef company. I chopped wood off of his land, um, didn't know anything about seasoned and treated <laughs> woods. it was a smoke fest, but just loved it. Um, so I didn't want to make a rub that was low and slow. So I found them all very sugary, salty, a lot of uh, MSG in a lot of them. And what I just looked at was the different worlds of flavours and the barbecues around the world, a bit like sandwiches. You know, there's a sandwich for every country. Well, there's a barbecue in style for every country in the world, even even England. Um, it might be in the garage over gas and a bit of sausage, but it's, uh, it's basically a, not even a posh... Um, Bunning sausage sizzle Anyway so I went into it and looked at Where I travelled in the world and connections And went with street barbecue Which is so it's rubs marinade Seasonings from flavours of the world um, Straight off the street of barbecue
1: that's wild. A, give us give us a sense of the different flavors or different countries, and are there sort of pork cuts that work with some of them as well?
0: Yeah, well, it's 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 amazing because like I so I've developed twenty three flavors, and then we launch we launch with seven, and um, the, the 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 different ones like so the um, so I've got this Mumbai ticker so the Mumbai tikka is actually uh, a recipe from actually in within Mumbai, a goat and uh, a, a goat butcher, right? And he, was, he had this live goat in uh, the square in the Catholic uh, precinct area of uh, Mumbai. And what I didn't understand was like, was he a goat seller? Well, it was a live goat. He slaughtered it straight away, butchered it, and then was cooking it, right? Um, and then next door had there was a a pork butcher and uh that was that was a, a a sight to see i must admit um that one i'll never forget so this mumbai tikka is based around marinating either with yogurt so you're adding that alkaline element and um preservative almost um that you marinate with pork or with um Uh, goat or lamb but the pork especially is it's rubbed in you hold it um whether it's diced and then you can make that into a curry or barbecue um one of the great ones is uh, a tuscan rub so based off of um flat uh bashed out like pork chop um uh and just sprinkled on one side grilled and then flipped and that is stunning and that is that it's that classic tuscan and paprika, oregano, garlic, salt, a touch of sugar, and a couple of the bits and pieces in there. Um, but the the one for pork, which um, I think everyone would remember when if they've ever been to Hong Kong, is the smell of barbecue, and it's it's barbecue pork. Um, it's black bean, it's barbecue, and then there's also the Peking duck. And I wanted to, I wanted to develop two Hong Kong wongs, and one more of Ma, 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 Ma Kai, the... Island, uh, which is absolute pork heaven, you know, just the the little trickling over small coals of this sugary bread tinged pork belly um, is, is is a memory I'll last forever. So I developed these. This I, I wanted to get this barbecue pork mixed with kind of like uh, Peking duck, and we were working on, them and none of them were, were there. So I had this barbecue pork uh, uh, black bean and this <laughs> hoisin as the two and I went oh, bugger it I'll just mix the two together <laughs> and it worked like like it's it's if you if you sprinkle it on and you go direct with pork onto the barbecue it burns because of the sugar but that is one of the main things in um it's like offset barbecue so you can if you slightly smoke say pork ribs um uh or even pork neck um born in or born out um in a, in a smoker for like a couple of hours and then you season this on and then set it for another half an hour and then, um, apply a heap more of the Hong Kong barbecue, uh, rub on, um, a little bit of water or, you know, you can have some, uh, cider or a little bit of wine, verdues or water and then wrap it and then you cook it for two more hours and then you just set it again for the last half an hour with a little extra rub in the barbecue mate it comes out and you carve it and you're like i'm i'm actually like where am i in hong kong am i in kowloon or am i on the island like it's and it like it was just one of those you know those memories of the, the drop and that, that one is the pork uh the pork master one i i think and then of course you have asado um so asado being a, a cooking term um it's it's based off all around brazil you know in, in different areas of brazil they do different types of asado with different meats whether it's chicken beef lamb um but one of them they do a lot is, is is pork and this is the base seasoning to sprinkle on um before and rub it in with oil and then as soon as it's cooked you season with it as well and i, I love that one
1: well, it's interesting to hear you sort of say that you're not really a low and slow sort of um, barbecue cook, but you do love cooking over fire. What, what's, what's some of the tips you have for that sort of faster cooking, um, particularly of pork over over a flame that's not low and slow?
0: So my one thing with pork, I'll take back like a a classic pork chop whether that's got the bone on or not so you know that can come from anywhere from a strip line all the way through to the scotch even even like my favorite is the neck chop right the great thing about pork is if it's cooked properly um there is still juice there and somehow you've got to capsulate that juice right that juice to me is started talking about meat vinaigrettes so as you're carving it on the board you or it's you want to be collecting that and mix it so my biggest tip is if you're going hard and fast and that means um like a ceramic grill like a primo like really like open it up get the get one side absolutely blaring with charcoal right and or even if it's your gas burner get it on like you know those crappy little uh, gas webbers right get it smoking hot season one side of the chop right and then straight on the grill. And leave it on there and then turn down the heat. So if if you're in a grill, people always go, well, how can you turn down the coals? Well, you open it all up or you can just shovel out the coals. Okay. So it's not, it is a bit like like cooking over fire. And I, I learned this the hard way is <laughs> you've always got to look after it. It's very easy to lower it. It's very hard to get it back going again <laughs> quickly without a lot of blowing or fanning. So back to that pork chop, you put it on and then you disperse thing, and you cook it just on one side and only seasoned on one side. Go as long as you can. Just you know, shovel it around, turn it um, ninety degrees, one hundred and eighty degrees, another ninety degrees. Keep but keep it on that one side. Make sure the heat's thing, and then just before you're about to serve, or when it's just before it's ready, you know the the colouring of the pork changes and it starts to get this caramelly brownness. You know, and everyone goes, is, "Is is pork? Is it is it pink? Is it white meat? Is it dark meat? Like which one is it?" Right, and it, it's it's to me it's unique, purely to its own. Um, and it is to me that pink. Um, and I've had some amazing pork dishes around the world, especially in Spain, where they, you know, serving pork, medium rare, but it's cooked all the way through. So it's over 63 degrees, but there's still a little bit of pink in it, is really a must for me. But as soon as it starts to raise up, it's a little bit caramelized on the bottom. You can see it's raising up and it's that, that pinkness has turned into white and gray. Then flip it over, cook it hard, so get the, increase the temperature again and just sizzle it, and then take it off and let it rest. Let it rest on the plate, put it onto a board, carve, put it back onto the plate, and all those meat juices, I then sprinkle a bit more. If we're using a a bit more Tuscan on there, I might chop some tomatoes through it, a squeeze of lemon juice, some um, Australian extra virgin um, olive oil, and you've got there the perfect pork steak for me from the barbecue. And quite often or not, people overcook it, but you... You just want it just, just, just cooked, and if intense heat first, just lower it down, intense to finish, and then uh, rest, carve, away you go.
1: You've done so many things, and it's hard to sort of pinpoint all of them. But there's like a wives' tale or a fable, or I don't even know if it's true about the gin pig. You, you were the creative director at Four Pillars. Um, for a while. Is the gin pig a real thing?
0: It it was a real thing. Um, Unfortunately, so that was – I actually did the first gin pig dinner at uh, Pope Joan. I reckon this is back 2017. No, it was earlier than that. It has to be earlier than that, 2014, 15. Let's let's call it 2015 for fun. Um, And what they were, they were um, Berkshire – across uh, saddleback pigs in the Yarra Valley, that part of their diet was uh, the botanicals um, fed um, from the stills. Um, and w- what it was at the... St- now, it, it's no longer a thing. Like I, I actually shouldn't talk about it. I'll get in trouble, but never mind. Cam, Stu, I'm sorry. Matt, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it was an amazing thing, and it just... We ended up falling out with the elements it just it got bigger than what it should have been and how which way it went to go but the the pigs were fed a botanical now any pig farmers out there know that pigs eat certain things won't eat certain things but then anything that's hungry will eat everything um they loved munching on the um star anise and the um cardamom and the coriander but unfortunately they didn't really like the juniper so we looked at we ended up making some pig feed with with the dry botanicals through it uh, and then they munched it and what it did is i think if you think you know the original wagyu when they fed it fermented beer grains it's not so much obviously the flavor going through but there was there's, there's high levels of magnesium some um and potassium within um the leftover botanicals um and that was imparting, and just made the meat really beautiful and and uh, succulent. Um, there were special pigs. Yeah.
1: Take us back to when you were when you were young. Your accent gives away kind of where you grew up. Tell us about. Sydney. Yeah, that's right. Um, tell us about sort of food in your family growing up. What sort of role did it play?
0: So I'm actually from the pig capital of England. Um yeah um uh so Yorkshire um base, is based off of a triangle of beer rhubarb and pigs so i don't know if you knew that like the the big english white is a or the yorkshire clusters yorkshire ham um uh is uh so the idea was that the breweries you know the tetlers the tadcasters the sam smiths the john smiths The leftover brew was fed to the pigs. The pig uh, waste shit was um, then fed into the the forced rhubarb, and the cycle went around. They did used to make it. They did did in a long time ago. Used to make a rhubarb beer, but um, that's the triangle. So Yorkshire ham and the traditional way of um, cold smoking um, ham legs is uh, uh, real traditional to Yorkshire. So I grew up with. Pig, pig, pig liver, pig tongue, uh, pig's head. Um, even my granddad used to pig's tail. Uh, he used to love uh, proper pork fat it was his preferred choice of cooking. Um, that or butter. There's no, there's no oils or olive oil. It was only the healthy stuff. <laughs> um, and then obviously being English, like and I, know, I know a lot of people and everyone's all like, oh, England's not good at food. They don't really have blah blah blah. Right. England's an amazing melting pot of food. Yes, there's the fish and sheep shops and there's a lot of bad food, right? But the sausage and the pork sausage especially is home to every county. Every county's got their version. Um, and there's actually some guys here in Australia, and Park guys, that uh, emulate that. Um, there's the, obviously the pork pie, which is famous from Leicestershire. Morbury um, pork pies where it's you know pork min- mince in a suet hot pastry and then the jelly inside, they they leave a hole, and um, from the evaporation of the pork mince inside, they um, do a, a gelatin jelly made from the trotters and all the pork fat and skin, and fill it in. Um, I grew up in a pub, and the butchers across the road used to make fresh pork scratchings, and we'd go and buy them. And we'd sell them in the pub, and like a traditional pork scratching that's been cooked in pork fat, dried, and then seasoned is. Look, it's it's not going to get probably not even one tick on the um, health rating in Australia, but with a pint of Fosters or a pint of John Smith's, it's 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 English luxury. Um, yeah, so like pork, pork has been like you know I can remember growing up. Sunday dinners was all uh, Sunday lunches was always my favourite, and it was quite often you know I grew up at that time where chicken was still. They've not really figured out how to mass-produce chicken. And pig was the the meat of choice, really, growing up, whether it's through sausages or bacon, which is completely another thing.
1: When, when did you start sort of getting involved and considering chefing as a career?
0: Um, well, I, we've, I think we've talked about this in the past, and I'm like, I never really wanted to be a chef. Um, I grew up in a pub and left... I was actually quite good at soccer and thought I was going to make it and then didn't make it. (laughs) Um, I was under 17s and uh, so I decided to leave school um, early (laughs) and grew up in pubs, wanted to be a a, a publican, but still being only 16. um, I went to trade school uh, for front of house and I had to part of it one day a week cooking and uh, I used to have to get dressed you know, they're dressed up in that classic chef uniform, checkered pants, white jacket, uh, the toggle thing with that bloody neckerchief, a tall hat, white apron, and white shoes. And I'll be honest with you, like growing up in the pub I got called a few names when I was <laughs> dressed in it. And it was still like in the early like well, early nineties or mid nineties, like still like Northern like it was wasn't seen as a profession um you know there was still there was marco and uh gordon had just like started his own place and there was all these greats like the uh the rue brothers um and Le manoir and burton race and all these big names nico but in the north of england it was still you know fish and chips so anyway i i had to go and um uh, my tutor john stevenson um in the first uh school holidays which is Our autumn sent me down to where his son was working at a place called Warren House in Kingston Pontemps on the edge of London. And I was supposed to go down, I was going for two weeks first, be one week front of house, and the second week kitchen. And the old bugger put me straight into the kitchen. And after the first day, this memorable thing happened with my head chef and one of my biggest mentors and friends. uh, Happened, and uh, I uh the next day they asked me to come into the office and it was like day two and you know like i'm you know i was a bit wild and a bit rough around the edges and they asked me in the office i was like well, what f-? Like, sorry for swearing but what the fuck have i done like the only time i've been asked to go into an office is usually the principal's office and that never turned out good and i'm like i haven't done and i literally walked in i was like what well, have i don't I have done anything like now, think you're all right we're just wondering we see something in you would you like a job and i'm like what <laughs> what i'm like and they offered me a stupid amount of money at 17 plus live-in and bills paid for and i'm like look i've got to check my my dad's best friend my dad lived in the pub he didn't actually own any of the pubs he just lived above them and worked for his best mate who owned them all his son rob jane ran all the pubs and i used to be like his little lackey and i love the guy like he's like I felt like he was like a big brother. And anyway, I called him up to see if it was OK. And he's like, you go for it. And whatever you learn, you can always bring back to the pubs. And that was like, that's what I went for. And then I just, like my first head chef was an ex-Michelin star uh, chef with Burton Race, been a head chef and pastry chef for Burton Rays for nine years. And this was his first head chef gig. And it was an unbelievable learning curve.
1: How did you end up in Australia?
0: Um, well, from London, I moved to uh, Edinburgh, and then whilst my time in Edinburgh, um, I realised it was time to go um, work somewhere else. So it was coming up like back in those days, like chefs used to do like eighteen months, two years, because eighteen months, two years was like ten years in a normal job, <laughs> um, and you always kept on moving on. And, and great head chefs moved you on, especially when you're in that commie junior demi chef chef party stage. Even even when you got to junior sous, sous chefs, like, no one would let their head chef go, but, you know, um, it was all about a learning curve. And Martin Wishart, um, I'd got offered a job with uh, down at Le Manoir, which Martin had organized, and Mike, our first head chef, and Mike had organized me, uh, my, uh, Martin had organised me to go work for Charlie Trotter in the US, uh, and I really wanted to go there, and I couldn't get my visa. Um, so there was a phone call from a certain Scottishman, which I won't mention his name, um, to Martin. And I was supposed to come out and work for the Scottish guy in Gary Megan at Phoenix and never never went. Um, my old man actually, uh, before he took retirement and went to work for his mate, um, worked for Foster's UK. So Australia's always had this connection, Martin, I live with Martin's brother, Gary, and Martin and Gary all travelled around Australia. And they're like, just go for a holiday. My first head chef, uh, Mike, said, mate, don't go to Australia. It's miles away. Just go to Magaluf, lose yourself in Ibiza, come back two weeks, go to La Manoir. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Um, so I came back to Australia with the idea of I was just going to be here for three, four months. Met a girl, went to Sydney, came back to Melbourne, Um, and was skint and then walked through the doors of View de Monde in January 2001 and um, haven't been able to return since.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, your impact has been extraordinary in Australia and um, with so many venues, but what's been probably the real sort of highlights or important moments in your career as you built it?
0: Um, I think it's humans. Connectivity, friendships, and connection to producers. Like my real, like there's, there's, a, there's. Obviously, everyone talks about food legacies and bits and pieces, but it's really how amazing the hospitality industry is with and it's not just it's not just the chefs like i listened to an amazing podcast the other day with dan sims and he was talking about you know waiters versus front of house and i've never believed in that like i was a little grumpy thing but it's always been about the customer but it's it's the people that are selling the equipment it is the dry store people it's the delivery guy that you get you know you've seen for four years and you know you might not use that I think that there's, there's something so beautiful about our industry of being able to talk to people and have a laugh and a joke and celebrate life that isn't like any other industry, I don't think. Um, and I feel blessed and honoured, and that's the highlight of my career, is um, having those people in my life and being able to have joy like that. But also to now, I think now is a stage where there's two, well, at, I'm, I'm now at Montalto Vineyard um, in a culinary director role, and I'm only there two days a week. And one day is to go in and just be me, right? Now we've there's there's it's a remarkable kitchen. It's um, it's there's three kitchens over the estate, uh, and different different people, different skill sets, but there's. Um, I'm back working with Craig uh, Penglazi, who we worked together back in the day at uh, Circa with, and he's a uh, like he's 55. They call him Granddad, right? Well, they actually call him Dad, but when he's away, I call him Granddad. And he's just got this beautiful sense of calm. It's great back working with him. Um, but there's two young humans, and scene where like I'm 44 this year. And I know I look twenty eight hookers. It's all right, um, but I am forty four. <laughs> Michael, the head chef, Michael Clancy, he's such a beautiful human soul, and the way he cooks of fire uh, in the restaurant, it's it's giving me energy to be better to try and give him my um, my thought process and how I think about food because it is like I, I do think I do think about seasonality and textures and flavors and but how he's cooking and how he talks with his team it's actually a beautiful thing to watch and how i was taught of the screaming and i've, I've still got a little bit of angriness in me uh, when it's tongue um and i don't like that about me you know and i watch these young younger generation of how they are managing especially in my team and it's it's blow away and then we've got the executive sous chef beth candy this extroverted um, live love of life human that has has made me change like how i'm managing and how and both those those two humans especially have made me want to give more back to the industry and it's not like it was dwindling but it was just it's just great having knowing that the the leaders like everyone complains about the user today there's not enough of them i i disagree i think there's just too many restaurants and we've forgot about human people and how we're training we're just opening more restaurants rather than concentrate on them on on it and there's some bigger restaurants that do really well don't get me wrong but they've just given me life and that's what i'm really proud of
1: from the outside looking in um pope jones sort of looked like a, a big shift in the way that you approached your cookery and and produce it was Tell us about a shift and how much you've changed as a cook. And it, was, that, was that a big moment for you? Um, well, what i had done is, like, because I took over from Andrew McConnell
0: at Circa. And, you know, I had to follow, like, restaurants are all about formats, really. If you actually break down a menu and how the sequence of service happens and the wine service that all impacts, it's, it's all about frameworks, so I took over from Andrew and the framework of how Andrew set Circa isn't how I cook or wanted to cook. So I went through like the Van handles, John and Lisa Van Handel, like absolute um, matriarchs of the industry and just absolute heroes of mine. I actually saw them last week and they they actually believed in me to say, this is the future of I Think Food. And, you know, Movida had been doing the sharing, but we took a fine dining Into this refined dining era with real uh, paddock to plate, nose to tail stuff, right? At high end. Like we had two hats. Like I lost three to two hats from Andrew. And that was really hard for me to take. I really struggled mentally. Like I didn't know where I was. And I was looking at that. The time, and finding my wife, Charlie Gibb, who worked for Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, helped me re-engineer and gear my brain into what i actually really wanted and what i thought food was therefore my own framework and then i needed to build a team that could cook they didn't, they didn't need to be chefs they need to be cooks and understand food and that's what my job was to teach them about seasonality and between the years of 08 and then we did the refurb 09 by by the time i left 2010 and i handed the reins to jake nicholson who was running the kitchen he was he can cook he understood it like he he knew relationships and these things that i was trying so what i wanted to do with pope joan was like the cafe seat, the, melbourne did not need another Uh, coffee shop back then maybe they did right but what i wanted to be and i've always said this is i didn't want to be the best in coffee back then i didn't even drink coffee right like to me to me a cafe was a greasy spooner from the uk you got like a big oval plate and if it wasn't if if you saw white on it you'd send it back you know what i mean uh and if you couldn't drink three mugs of uh tea that had been sat there since the previous week you know you were weak um So, But but what I wanted to do in that scene was I wanted to be, and my analogy always was, I I don't want to be the best food. I don't want to be the best thing, but I want to be Ian Botham, the best all-rounder, right? And also engaging in my my realisation, I'd started writing my first cookbook then, was the thing that drives me more than anything else is community, humans, connection to humans, and learning through food, then the history and geography of those things. So pope Jones was about community wasn't about matt wilkinson or what you put on the plate if if the people bought my beliefs and honesty as did my team as did my business partner you know in the end that 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 did towards the end fizzle out but what we wanted to do was just create so this seasonality so you could be it was a truly seasonal cafe right i still live my life truly seasonal like um no tomatoes and that's what travel is so brilliant about like like my kids get excited about going to queensland in winter because they can have bloody tomatoes like <laughs> not because they're going to the beach <laughs> you know what i mean like it's it's I'm a weirdo in that way but, but that's what we did with the cafe and i wanted to add my britishness to it it was something that um i didn't do at circa like there was just small twists on you know offal and pork um and uh, you know we had black pudding we had the most amazing bacon from Melbourne pantry, the most amazing black pudding and sausages from Pacton park. Um, I made my version of Heinz baked beans like, and then we had some of the trickery stuff, like some very English things like anchovies on toast. Like I used to do haggis. I did the, like, um, uh, sometimes I'd do toad in the hole or we'd do like Yorkshire puddings with, uh, poached egg and smoked salmon. Riette. So, It was just a change that I want to do. And what I realized I created was a community of food, of connecting uh, myself, uh, uh, chefs, um, producers, um, customers, consumers all together. And it was just, it was fun, huggers. Like it was so much fun. And then I did the, you know, the, the summer, like I was able to trial things. And now I don't have my own. Um, bricks and mortar i'm a bit you know um it's a loss and i sometimes feel it because um there's a respect i have to pay to others because it's their business and not trade on tours or you know i am a bit wilder than the average bear <laughs> and some of the ideas that i would come up with some people don't like <laughs> like think it's a bit not doesn't sit in their world but you know going back to the summer camp cookout like with that I'd broken up with my business partner I'd lost a lot of money with Jack Horner I'd closed down Hams and Bacon and was re-emerging it as the pie shop because I couldn't make it into a little wine bar because the, I didn't have enough money to invest in toilets because I wanted to use the toilets already at Pope Joan, and the council wouldn't let me. So I was like, well, what else is missing? And Wari Alda, Belter Galloway, just their person who just started making, stopped making pies from I was like, well, just, just make pies. And my good mate Steve Rogers had just finished with Movida, and he needed something to do. So it's like, well, just go make pies in a little shop. And it worked. But then the summer camp cookout was about, what do I love doing? Like when I do these events or at home, I love cooking over fire and just winging it. Like, it's, like, most of the events I do, I've literally changed the menu on the spot there and then, right? And edit, like, oh, there's no risk, like, it's, like, I call myself a box, and I put my lots of things in that box, but I don't know what could end up happening, <laughs> you know? And I love that, and that Summer Camp Cookout gave me back my expression of, back cooking Jakey um, McWilliams is actually down uh, well he's actually um, the chef at Theo's in Noosa now beautiful cooking we just cooked together like just so and a front of house guy James like just fun like it was fun oh my god like you know how many times like you go to restaurants and they're just like where's the fun gone like we've just come out of Covid well now I know that was a while ago and then I was like why is it not fun <laughs> um, and that's what I loved
1: well, uh, having spent a little bit of time with you, you definitely f- sit in that fun category. Um, but, but what what do you love about what you do? Um, I think that the,
0: the love is like if, if the 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 food side of it is Julie Bennett, who's the kitchen garden grower at Montalto. She's growing this most amazing produce. Like and being able to talk to her about growing things and what we can get, seeing it pulled out. That morning, being picked, washed, and was cooking it just before guests come. So, you know, like going back to that formulation of what restaurants are, you generally, it's prepped and it's prepped for two or three dates. It's prepped, chilled, put into plastic containers, popped into the fridge, brought out for service. The restaurant at Montalto is like the salad is no more than two days old. Okay, usually it's that morning. If beans have been picked, there is the element of the piazza where they do have to prep a couple of days, but generally, it's a, as a rule, it's only two days. You know, I know some restaurants that prep six, seven days, but for the for the restaurant itself at Montalto, the the the, the it's only open Friday to Monday lunches. It's four courses sharing. It's only that day. Nothing goes into the fridge. No reuse, like the zucchini. Like you're cooking right to the to the die, and that is. It's invigorating the flavor. It's invigorating because of, you know, you might run out. Is it enough? But It's invigorating more because of flavor. And that flavor from just picked, beautiful, grown, literally furthest away is 900 meters. And that day from soil that you know that is healthy and smells great, like I'm already winning. That's what I love about cooking, that freshness. Of vegetable of, of like killing like I, I've been part of a lot of being able to kill animals so I understand and it might sound weird but taking the heart out of a just killed animal realising that it's at body temperature it's warm and being able to just quickly slice it marinate it and put it over a little grill and taste it and go wow like I, I know freshness and that's, that's what I really love about cooking like Um, and then, then there's the other side with, because I was 16 at a young age, and this is one of the hard things going into street barbecue, what I didn't realize, us in hospitality, but especially chefs, we're so used to, um, having a target and achieving it straight away there and then. And if there's a problem, you can rectify it there and then there's no waiting (laughs) in selling a product, having it on a shelf, the time it takes, it is completely, it's, it's a whole new mind game and ball game for me and like uh, like barbecues galore is now stocking at street barbecue but there's seven rubs they always they've only taken three rubs it took six months to get the deal right and i'm here going well what's wrong if you don't like it like i'll come i'll cook for you i'll cook at every barbecue store if you want what do you want from me to get this over the line because i'm used to uh, success every day and you know think about it as a chef an order comes in and if you're an all-day place, it's even worse. But traditionally 12 till 3 for lunch, you achieve your goals. And then you've got to um reprep or retide yourself up to redo your goals for a night time. Um I would have hated to have been cu- worked at Cumulus, saying that Pope John was pretty bad because sometimes we be were seven in the morning till um nine at night, um, and all day eating. Like you you're waiting and you, you, you achieve your goals and that, that's, that's now my new goal and something I've got to figure out. Um, how, do I, uh, how do I calm down with the res- non-results?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Matt, as always, it's an absolute pleasure catching up with you. Um, please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks for having me on, bud. This is The Crackling. A Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Pork Star. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.